Now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter four as we continue our study on the patterns and the uh, sequence of worship and the characteristics of worship uh, that pleases God. Here, Revelation four. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings thunderings and voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. These four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, you have given us your spirit to lead us in worship, and you have given us your spirit to guide us into truth. So today, as we consider the things that please you in worship, we pray that you would grow us more and more and grant us your spirit, fill us with your spirit, and illumine our thoughts to these things so that we may obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I thought you said we were done with the book of Revelation. I thought... We wouldn't come back here for a while. I humored you uh, for that whole 18-year study in the book, but now here you are coming back. Well, um, I'm just reading one chapter today, and we are in the middle of a study of the things that please God in worship, the sequence and the patterns and the principles of worship that God has clearly communicated in his word so that we can apply it, so that we can obey it, so that we can follow the things that he has revealed to us. And so after that long study in Revelation, just coming back to visit and apply the things we heard and remembered and were taught in Revelation. Every Lord's Day, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. We sing the Lord's Prayer. And one of the petitions of that prayer is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prays and he teaches us to pray that heaven and earth be one, that we pray that things run on earth the way they run in heaven, that heaven and earth share the same priorities. Well, God's will is completely and perfectly and exhaustively completed in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. 
earth has a lot of catching up to do. So it's our job, week by week, by obedience to our creator, to shape and refashion earth wherever we have influence to follow heaven's priorities, heaven's values, so that what is important is in heaven will become important on earth. And we pray that prayer, uh, the, the prayer that Jesus gave us, knowing that, that we're not left to imagine how things run in heaven. We don't just assume that certain things take place and then we muddle through following our imagination of how things run in heaven. No, throughout the scriptures in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Revelation, in other places, we're given glimpses of how things run in heaven in order that we might imitate heavenly order. The earthly sanctuaries that God gave his people, the temple and the tabernacle, were both earthly representations of God's heavenly sanctuary. When Ezekiel goes up and he gets a tour of heaven's courts, he finds out, wow, this looks just like the temple you told us to build. Your temple is like our temple. So what that means is when Israel worshiped on earth, they were doing things that were reflective of the kind of worship that took place in the heavenlies. Now in Revelation 4, we see that John the apostle is called up to witness the worship that happens around God's heavenly throne. And you and I get to go with John up into the heavenlies to see how things run there. And so if we want heaven and earth to run the same way, if we genuinely pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, then we have to reflect what we see here in heaven's worship. So I want to quickly focus on three features of this view of heavenly worship, three features of worship in heaven, and then begin to walk through our worship order. So we haven't done that in a while, and it's good to refresh and remember, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we say the things that we say? Why do we do it in the order that we do it? And then from there, over the next couple of Sundays, we'll continue to walk through the order of worship. As we are seeking to please the Lord Jesus by following biblical and heavenly patterns of worship. We didn't make this up. This didn't come from us. Uh, lots of churches, many, 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 many churches uh, across the world follow the same pattern that we have, and they've done it for centuries. This is something we've received, not something we invented. Um, and, I, and I hope to show you all of that over the, over the next few weeks. So first we see in, in these glimpses into heavenly worship, we see that heavenly worship is first corporate worship. Primarily and fundamentally, heavenly worship is corporate worship. The 24 elders, the angels, and the cherubim, together with the 10,000 times 10,000s that we see in the next chapter of Revelation, uh, all worship and praise God together. Biblical worship is not, first and foremost, private, personal, individual worship. Biblical worship is worship in communion with others. We don't have a purely self-enclosed communion with the triune God. In fact, you've heard me say this often. Not even God the Father has a purely personal relationship to his son, Jesus. The relationship of the Father to the Son has always included the Holy Spirit. God himself is a community, a, a community of persons within the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have interacted and loved and glorified each other throughout eternity. So if God does not have a personal relationship to God, purely individualized, 
is what I'm saying, then how can we have a purely individualized relationship to God? But how many times have you been in worship in a church where what is overstressed again and again and again is your personal private worship experience? where individual worship has the priority and the focus over corporate worship. And I'm not making this up. I've heard accounts of churches even setting up a communion table off to the side where you can just get up anytime in the service you like, in the middle of the sermon. If you want to wander over there and have communion, have at it. If you feel so moved by a song that you're singing or listening to, you can just wander over there and get your Welch's and get your saltine cracker and go back to the corner and have communion by yourself. Again, that sounds crazy, but I'm not making it up. Um, the, 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 the thing that is underscored is private, personal, individual experiences in worship, and the corporate, communal aspect of worship is, is not uh, underscored or highlighted at all. Now, can you pray on your own? Absolutely. You must pray on your own. You must pray and must carry on a dialogue with, with your creator? Can you pray with your family? Can you get together and study the scriptures in small groups and with, with small groups of people or even study the scriptures by yourself? Absolutely, and you should. But you see, all of that activity flows out of what you do when you're together with God's people. Here is where you learn how to pray, how to learn how to worship, worship that pleases God. And your private devotion can never take the place of or take priority over corporate worship. You can't say on a Sunday morning and be faithful to God, you know what, I think a little quiet time this morning would be more meaningful than gathering with the saints. Uh, that would be more special and more genuine than gathering with the saints. Know the kind of worship that God intends to shape you and sanctify you, how he intends to grow you, is through the worship and the instruction of the whole body. In Ephesians 4, Paul says this. He says, you are joined and knit together for the growth of the body and for the edification of the body in love. I am knit to you and you are knit to me. And we are dependent upon each other. As you grow, I grow. As you learn, I learn. We are, we are a body that is, that is fit together, which means if, if a part of us is ripped off, it hurts and it's painful. And if a part of us is hurting, the whole body hurts. And then, and then Paul says, that's what keeps us from being tossed around by every doctrine. It's what keeps us grounded, is this life together. We only prosper when we're living and worshiping in communion with others. We've observed over the last two Sundays how Christian worship is priestly, intercessory worship. We've looked at how worship is warfare, and we've looked at how worship is covenant renewal. When we gather together in official corporate worship, we are ascending together in the heavenlies to hear God's voice and to be heard by God in an official capacity as the body, as the bride of Christ. And there's no guarantee, there's no promise anywhere that you can do all of that by yourself, that you can have all of that and possess all of that all by yourself. You may say, well, God is everywhere, isn't he? Well, absolutely, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, but he's not everywhere in the same way. Is God's presence felt in hell? Absolutely. His wrath is felt in hell. His presence is felt in hell, but his presence is not felt the same way there that it is in heaven. 
So God is here in a way that he's not present in the bass boat and he's not present in the deer stand and he's not present on the golf course in the same way that he's present among his gathered people. He's not present on the beach on a Sunday morning in the way that he's present here among his people because this is where his people are formally assembled. Wherever God's people are gathered for public worship, there this intercession and this warfare and this covenant renewal that I've been talking about happens. And and you just look at the scriptures, God's people gather for these purposes. So worship must first be corporate. Worship is corporate in heaven. Worship is corporate. Worship in heaven is also a dialogue. Heavenly worship is participatory. There are choirs of angels calling back and forth, responding to everything that the Lord does. Remember when we studied through the entire book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus would do a thing and choirs of angels would respond. He'd do something else and the martyrs would cry out. He'd do another thing and the elders uh, would respond. The cherubim uh, would respond. So worship in heaven is is a dialogue. There are prayers and praises going up from the martyrs and the elders and the angels, a constant running conversation between God and his people, between the bridegroom and the bride. And so what that means is because there's this dialogue going on, that means the environment of the church is not the same setting as a lecture hall. This is not a concert hall. Worship is not a a comedy club. It's not a talk show. It's not a circus. It doesn't follow any of those formats because worship is not about certain paid professionals doing things for a passive audience. From the early Middle Ages, we've always struggled with this. We've had to fight this tendency to make worship something that you passively watch instead of actively participate in. Uh, the, the temptation and the tendency is to want worship to be, I come in and I watch a priest do something for me, or I watch musicians do something for me, and I'm entertained or, or in some way inspired by this. But that would be okay if you weren't a priest, but you are, you are a priest, and you have an official duty to enter God's sanctuary and to do certain things while you are there. Yeah, there are times to hear, there are times to listen, the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, but you always have opportunities to respond to that. And so from the beginning of worship, we greet each other at the beginning. We pray together. Every Sunday, there's a call and response. We read an entire psalm word for word. We sing it back and forth to each other. Uh, The psalms are written to be used that way. You remember in the psalms, um, and as we even sang this morning, there's a thought, and then there's a um, a regurgitation of that thought. There's a, there's a thought presented and then there's a restatement, a reformulation of that same thought. So the, the bridegroom speaks and then the bride responds and then he speaks and she responds and that's what we're doing by singing the psalm together in the way that we do it. We confess our faith together. We eat together. We drink together. Um, and, and we're doing this in response to what God is doing. We sing in response to the things that God has said and done. The point of all this is you are not a spectator. You are not a spectator. 
You're not here to watch something a priest is doing for you. You're not here to watch entertainment or to listen to a lecture. You are a priest and you have an official duty on the Lord's day to come into his presence and do certain things, to intercede on behalf of the world, to come and worship the God of creation that the entire world outside of the church is ignoring. But you come in and you intercede on behalf of the world and your worship and your praises beat back the dominion of darkness and death. You are a priest. That's why we have a dialogue. You have work to do. I always laugh. Uh, sometimes somebody will visit our church and they'll, at, they'll meet me at the back door. I'll say, that was exhausting. I say, good, good. We want to wear you out because you have work to do. The liturgy, we call the liturgy, the work of the people. You have work to do on the Lord's day in his sanctuary. So we have this constant dialogue and exchange throughout worship. And this is intentional. This is deliberate because we're imitating the heavenly pattern. <clears throat> now you notice when the angels and the saints and the martyrs and the elders sing in heaven, they all sing the same thing. You don't have a thousand different voices singing a thousand different songs or singing at different times. They all sing as if on cue and they all sing the same song. It's like, we're, it's like watching a musical. You have some actors doing some dialogue and you get into the story and you're being told a story. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, everybody starts singing and dancing. And they all know the song. They all know the words to the same song. And they all know the steps to the dance. They all know the choreography as if they've practiced this before, you know, as if they've done this before. It's like they had it planned out ahead of time, following an order, because they are, right? I mean, it, it kind of takes me out of the moment. Say, oh, yeah, I'm watching a musical. I'm not watching a play. And they all know the same song. What a world that would be, right? If you just, you know, went to Walmart and you all started singing about the eggs or the milk or something and uh, all broke out into a song. That would be delightful. Um, which brings me to the third observation. Worship in heaven is orderly. In order for it to be orderly, that means worship has to follow a set order. Everyone has to agree and say and sing the same thing at the same time. Uh, the elders fall down before the throne all at the same time. The angels all sing the same thing at the, at the same time. Um, so doing that well, for us to do that, to sing the same thing at the same time and to do the same thing, well, it takes practice. It takes doing the same thing the same way over and over and over. The word ritual is a bad, it's a negative word for many people. When we think of ritual, and I think we get it honestly, we think of old, dead ritualism, saying and doing boring things that you don't mean, going through the motions, being hypocrites about what you're saying. But we typically only call rituals old and dead and boring when we're talking about the church. We say that, that's ritualism and that's hypocritical when it comes to the rituals of the church. But we have rituals every day. We have very good rituals. There are things you do in a certain way every day. You do it in the same order. Um, you, you get the toothbrush, you wet it under the faucet, you put the toothpaste on it, and you, and you brush your teeth. That's your ritual. That's your liturgy of, of brushing your teeth. Uh, tomorrow, just to mix things up, just to be a little bit more genuine, just to be a little bit more spontaneous, why don't you brush your teeth and then wet it and then put the toothpaste on it and then put it in the cabinet? You try that and see how that does. No, that's, that's not. We, we do the same things in the same way, and if something disrupts our order, it can throw the whole day off. You know, if you depend upon that cup of coffee in the morning, uh, and you miss it. You miss that ritual. You miss that routine. The whole day's messed up. 
Um, we do things in the same order at certain times of the day and night, and there is stability, and there is security in these routines. We have rituals for expressing our love. The words I love you are still pretty great. You don't compose new ways of saying I love you every day. Sometimes you may add other things. Sometimes you, you may um, do other things, but you say I love you. And it's very meaningful. I didn't make up the words I love you. I know none of y'all wrote the words I love you, but it doesn't make it less meaningful. You don't say, well, I'm just doing what somebody else did. I need to come up with my own way of saying I love you. We introduce ourselves in pretty much the same way every time. I walk up to you, I extend my hand, I say, hi, I'm Dwayne. How's it going? What's your name? Where are you from? Uh, what do you do for a living? We do this, these routines and these orders. We don't invent new ways of greeting each other. We don't, you know what, I'm, I'm, I just want to be really genuine. So I think the next time I greet somebody, I'm going to stand on one leg and stick up my tongue and bark like a dog. And then that would be a really, a really genuine way of greeting somebody. I'm just bored of that old dead ritual of sticking up my hand and smiling and saying my name. No, don't do that. Don't, that's weird. The rituals we depend on every day, thank you, you're welcome, please, may I, pardon me. Th those, those things, those rituals of human interaction are not meaningless. And if someone doesn't do them, we think they're very odd. If someone forgets the rules of courtesy, we get upset and we get offended and say, well, they, were they raised in a barn? Bless their heart and don't even know how to say thank you. And if you start to feel like a hypocrite, and if you start to feel like you really don't mean what you say anymore, the, the problem is not with the words, I love you. The, the problem is not with the words, thank you. The problem is not with the rituals of common courtesy. The problem is with you. If you're saying thankful and your heart is not grateful, if you're saying I love you and you don't love, the problem is not with the ritual. The problem's with you. The ritual is not dead, you are. You have to be corrected. You don't, change. you don't change something that works. And so the things that are most important to us, we ritualize. Birth and marriage and death. We face these big transformational life changes. We reach for ceremony. There are things that we expect to do and to have done and say and participate in in these big events because there is comfort in ceremony. There is comfort in ritual and in order. You don't want anybody monkeying around and turning your uncle uncle's funeral into a circus. You don't want, I mean, you've been to a wedding where everybody tries to do something funny and, and different, and it just, it comes off very weird and very awkward. We love ritual, and it's good, and it's comforting, and it's safe until it comes to worship, until it comes to the church, and then we get all weird about it. One big factor in all this uneasiness with order and good ritual is that American evangelicals, and I include myself in this, I include myself in this, in this criticism that, that, that I was not raised, and we're not raised, um, with, with, a, with order and an expectation of order. We, we have this assumption that whatever is extemporaneous and whatever is impromptu is more genuine, is more spirit-led. Whatever is impromptu is more meaningful and real than something you've thought through. As if the Spirit can lead me better in the heat of a moment than He can lead me through hours of careful study and planning and preparation. 
No, most often the extemporaneous and the impromptu is more shallow and not as meaningful as something you've poured over and worked on. Carefully planned, thought-out ritual doesn't obscure meaning, it underscores it. In fact, we like doing the same things every day the same way because we're like God. God causes the sun to rise every morning. It sets every evening, and it has been doing that since the time of creation. The moon circles the earth, and we get to watch it wax and wane. Uh, He gives us winter and spring and summer and fall, and he does this every year. The Lord God gives us order and ritual in creation, and he doesn't mix it up, and he doesn't grow tired or bored. If we want to do what God says and follow his examples and his patterns and what he's shown us that pleases him, if we want our earthly worship to look more like heavenly worship, that means continuing to reform ourselves and our worship to be more corporate and more responsorial and more orderly. Now, to apply everything that we've said about worship over the last few weeks, for the next few minutes and then for at least next week, I want to just walk through our order of worship and make comments along the way about what we do so everybody knows what we're up to. Everybody knows why we say, I don't want to ever get to a point where our children are just saying, I don't know why we do this, but we just, we just do it. I want us all to remember. It's been about six years since I've done this, and I, I thought we've just done it recently, but it, but it hasn't been. So, so I want to walk through what we do when we get together. When we gather After we take care of announcements, we have a musical prelude. Ordinarily, we have the piano or the organ play a piece of music. It's also nice to have a choir or a quartet or other musical instruments as we do from time to time. But worship begins in music. You notice that John was called up into the heavenlies with a voice like a trumpet. Trumpets blasted out and called for Israel to assemble at the tent of meeting. Uh, At Mount Sinai, trumpets blew so that the people knew when to assemble. Worship begins with music. And this is the time when the prelude is being played before we have the formal call to worship. This is the time for you to get sorted out, get settled, get your hymnal, get your bulletin, get everything together, take a deep breath, and then seriously consider what we're about to do together. We are about to enter God's presence. And then I rise and we begin with a call to worship. We saw last week where Moses acts as God's official representative before Israel. Moses calls Aaron and the elders and the priests to all assemble. It's God calling them to worship, but he does it through his representative. He does it through Moses. In Christian worship, the pastor as the representative of Christ formally calls the saints to worship. And that's an important point to camp out on for just a second. The minister leading the congregation in worship is Christ's representative. I'm not Jesus. I'm not pretending to be. But Peter writes in his epistle that Jesus is the great shepherd and pastors are under shepherds to whom Jesus has entrusted the flock. Now, False shepherds and greedy shepherds and hypocritical shepherds will be judged severely. And that gives me a deep sense of fear over the job that God has called me to do. But if the shepherd is leading faithfully, if he recognizes his own frailties and sins and weaknesses, he is still standing in for Jesus as he leads you in worship. 
So when the minister calls you to worship, it's Jesus calling you to worship. When he calls you to confess your sins, it's Jesus calling you to do that. When he says you're forgiven, he can say you're forgiven because Jesus says you're forgiven. When he reads God's word, you're hearing the voice of Jesus. When he feeds you at his table, it's Jesus feeding you. And when he blesses you, it's Jesus blessing you. This is historically one reason why the church has had her pastors signify his office by a uniform. The church has historically had her pastors robed, not so that they can look special or higher. He's robed so that he is muted, so he's covered up, so that you know it's not just Dwayne, it's not just you know Jack or Steve or, or whoever. He's standing in for Jesus. So he's not dressed like a used car salesman, and he's not dressed like a lawyer, and he's not dressed like the guy at the comic book shop. He has a uniform that suits his office. And so the Reformed Church uh, particularly has always had uniforms for her pastors to remind the pastors and to remind the congregation of their office. If you go back and look at all the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, uh, John Owen, they, they're all wearing uniforms. They're all wearing robes. They're all wearing tabs. And they, are, they have a, 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 a uniform that sets them apart. Is that, that guy, he's got that job, and he is representing the Lord Jesus. Let's just imagine you go to court and you're, you're going to have a serious case heard and the judge comes out, all rise, and the judge comes out in a Spider-Man t-shirt and flip-flops and, uh, you know, like uh, cargo shorts. And uh, he says, hey man, I'm Todd. Hope you're doing all right. I'm going to hear your case today. I don't know, I hope there's no Todds. I'm not making fun of Todds, but he sounds like a Todd. I mean, come on, he sounds like a Todd, right? Um, if somebody did that, you would think that somebody's pulling a prank. You'd say, where's the cameras? This guy's not serious. He's not taking this seriously. Judges are robed because in his office, he's representing the government and the people. Now, is what's happening in worship in heaven's courts more or less important than what is happening in earthly courts? Is the government that that judge represents more or less important than the king the pastor represents. You see, the reason that the pastor wears a uniform is because Dwayne needs to fade way to the back. And his job is to point Jesus out to you. And Christ must take the center stage. My job is to point you to Jesus, not myself. And one way to do that, and one way to remind us all of that, me included, is to, is to have the pastoral uniform. So in case you were wondering, what's up with that? And you never had the courage to ask. Uh, if you have more questions, we can talk about it. But that was a good place to bring that up. So we're formally called to worship and we respond with singing. And then the minister calls on us to confess our sins. Remember the first sacrifice that you bring in Leviticus chapter nine, that's the sin offering. We have to deal with our sins when we come into God's presence. And so we kneel together to pray. We kneel because our bodies and our souls are connected. They're tied together in such a way that what you do with your body affects your heart. What you do on the outside affects your inside. So even though you may not feel particularly humble, you may not feel particularly penitent, kneeling puts you in a position of humility. And then we confess our sins together. These are corporate prayers. We say them together and we say, we confess our sins and we have not loved you and we have not done justly. 
You might think again that it might be more meaningful and more genuine if we all just prayed our own prayers. And there is a short little time. If you've got something individual uh, to confess, there is a time for silent prayer. But for the most part, we're praying together and we're praying all at the same time. Remember, that's how the angels worship. They don't, they don't pick their own hymn and sing it whenever they feel like it. Um, by the way, hymns are just sung prayers. We sing together uh, prayers that other people wrote. And all the prayers we use for confession of sin and other prayers from time to time, these are prayers that God's people have used for centuries. And if we recoil from that a little bit, if we, if we have this idea that the unplanned and the spontaneous is more real and more genuine, um, think about the last time you stepped on a Lego. What came out of your mouth might have been spontaneous, and it might have been impromptu. You might have said a whole lot of things that were just out of the moment, but weren't very meaningful and weren't very edifying. <laughs> the spontaneous is not always more meaningful. Spontaneous prayers are fine. We do them all the time. We ought to pray all the time. And I do it. I have this constant dialogue with God throughout the day. I'm praying all the time. But with these composed prayers, it's amazing how well they're written with a real beauty and economy of language. They're infused with biblical language. They say more in three sentences than I can say in 20 minutes of extemporaneous prayer. And honestly, there's no such thing as purely original prayer. When we pray extemporaneously, we're praying things that we've heard other people say. We're, we've, we're praying things we've said before, and that's fine. That's how we learn. We learn by repetition. So I want there to be good prayers that we're learning from. But if you just insist and you say, I can't pray something that somebody else has written, that's just not genuine. Well, can you sing something that somebody else has written? Is, is how firm a foundation or a mighty fortress less meaningful because somebody else wrote it? What about the Psalms? The Psalter is a whole book in the Bible of songs and, and prayers that somebody else wrote and we're commanded to use them in worship. Jesus gave us a prayer to use. If you only said prayers that came out of your own heart, we couldn't have corporate worship at all. Congregational worship means saying and doing things together. So we confess our sins together and just as we kneel as sinners in humility, we stand up cleansed and forgiven. I always say, arise and lift up your heads and hear the good news of God's forgiveness. This is not a time to stare at your shoes or fumble with your bulletin or, or uh, stare at the wall or daydream. I try to make eye contact with as many of you as I can during, during this time because I want you to know, I want you to know that you are forgiven. As a representative of Christ, I have the authority to tell you, based on your confession of sin, based on your true repentance, you have true forgiveness. And I want you to hear that, and I want you to pay attention to the promise of the gospel, and I want you to know that your fundamental identity is saint and not sinner. You are holy. You are washed. You are cleansed. I want you to, to get that, and I want to make sure that you get it. So when I say lift up your heads and hear the good news of God's forgiveness, I want you to look up here, pay attention and, and, and let me know that you get it. Smile if you can and give me that assurance that you know that the Lord Jesus has covered your sins and has forgiven you. Well, next Sunday, we'll move into the ministry of the word. We'll move into the Ascension offering. So we'll just stop here. One final thought, the purpose of ritual. 
The purpose of liturgy, of orderly worship, is discipline. We are training our mouths and our bodies, and we're training our children to respond to God in a way that he has told us, he has shown us, this is what pleases me. If certain things take place in heaven where his dominion is unquestioned, where his dominion is fully realized. If things take place in heaven, then we know it pleases him. And so we follow heaven's patterns, not just going through the motions, but because we know we're transformed from the outside in. Everything good that comes to you comes from outside of you. Food, air, sunshine, water, love, friendship, salvation, the Holy Spirit. What comes from inside of us is corruption and depravity and wickedness and sin. What comes from inside of us is shallow and empty and not very meaningful. But we've been tricked into thinking that what comes from the inside is more real than what comes to us from the outside. And with that, we think that the individual, and my experience, is more important than the whole. We think that the internal emotional sentiment is more relevant than the external objective reality of the community of God entering his courts uh, with worship and praise. And if we lean on that, and we're left thinking that change is going to come from the inside alone, that, that I can change myself. I don't need anything coming from the outside because what's inside of us is really more genuine and heartfelt and, and, and real and deep. Worship that follows heaven's patterns confronts all of that and says, no, you are changed from the outside. You need God's Holy Spirit to come from the outside and transform you. You are transformed by the corporate worship of the saints. You are changed by dialogue with the saints and with the triune God. You are transformed by the discipline of orderly worship that trains you in how to confess your sins and listen to God and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. And that trains you not only how to act on Sunday morning, but it trains your heart and your mind for Monday morning and for Saturday night and everything in between. That's what we're after. Worship orchestrates life. The law of worship is the law of life. If we want orderly lives, we must have orderly worship that pleases God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing uh, these things to us, showing us what you expect from us. Father, continue to change us and reform us and show us our blind spots. Show us the things that we are missing and that we really uh, need to change in order to please you. So Father, grow us by your spirit. Mature us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.